Welcome. I'm Nathan, the host of this podcast. And tonight, I'm honored to be joined by Sam Desai. Sam is a 2020 graduate of Harvard College, having concentrated in social studies with focuses in constitutional law, American foreign policy, and political economy. At Harvard, he served as president and captain of the Harvard Mock Trial Association, co-founded the Alexander Hamilton Society, and worked as a research assistant to Harvard Law School professor Noah Feldman. He currently works in the constitutional law space and plans on attending law school. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Nathan? Uh, thank you very much for inviting me on the podcast. It's a, it's a real honor to be here. Doing great. It's an honor to have you. So I'd just like to start us off with the age-old question of if you could have dinner with any historical figure, who would it be and why? Um, dinner with a historical figure. I'd have to go with uh, one of my favorites, Seneca the Younger. So Se- Seneca the Younger, I want you to go back 2,000 years ago, Roman Empire. Okay, Seneca was a, um, he was a statesman. He was a political advisor to the Emperor Nero. But most importantly for us today, he was also a philosopher. He was actually uh, belonging to the school known as Stoicism today. Stoicism, it's all about uh, life and death, you know, fortune and fate. And what it teaches us is that we have to sort of control our emotions um, and we have to control our desires in order to achieve you know, personal freedom and self-improvement. Um, Seneca has a beautiful series of letters called the Moral Letters written to a uh, a gentleman named Lucilius, who at the time was a very ambitious governor in, in Rome. And, uh, and, and Seneca, he, he goes through all these teachings in those letters. He also has a series of dialogues and, and plays. Um, there's a ton of great writing. To me, what's most interesting about him and the reason why I would love to have dinner with him is the story of his end. Um, as I said, he was an advisor to the Emperor Nero. And Nero was not a great emperor, Nathan. He, he was not very popular. He was not doing a good job. And there was actually a conspiracy at the time um, among some members of the Roman elite to get rid of Nero and to replace him, legend goes, with Seneca. So Nero found out about this plot. He you know, essentially informed Seneca that his days were numbered, that perhaps he would have to uh, spend the rest of his life in prison in order to pay for his crimes against the state. And throughout Seneca's letters, Seneca always discussed um, death. I mean, he, he really teaches you not to fear death in any way. He says, death, it's, you know, b- before you were born, you didn't exist. And after you die, you won't exist. It's the same thing. There's nothing to be afraid of. And so if life gets too hard, uh, if, if fortune is, is too hard on you, there's a very easy way out. And actually, when the time came and, you know, he, he was faced with the prospect of prison for going against Nero, um, according to legend, he took his own life very calmly, very stoically, and he walked the walk after talking the talk. He held true to his own beliefs. Exactly. Exactly. And I, and I would love to ask him, first of all, um, were you really gunning for the throne? And second of all, you know, just, just walk me through the, the thought process of, of when Nero comes to you, of when you find out that, you know, perhaps you're going to have to be in prison and how you come to the, to the decision that, that you do. 
Extremely interesting. Um, this is the first time I've really heard of Seneca the Younger, and what a great way to be introduced. Yeah. Um. Then, I guess, um, Sam, being an expert on speech and rhetorical devices, um, what are three key characteristics shared by famous speeches that really made them impactful in history and on people? Sure. Well, um, as you as you put it, you, you said I'm an expert. That's that's very generous of you. Um, I do have an extreme interest in speeches and in rhetoric, uh, and one of the things that I've studied and I actually taught a class on this uh, virtually, the great speeches of history. And so I, I sort of went through the last two thousand, three thousand years. I tried to uh, w- with my co-teacher find and catalog what were the greatest speeches, who were the greatest speakers, pick a selection of them, and then read them and, and try to understand what was going on you know, behind the scenes, under the covers. Um, and so some of the people we looked at, we looked at Socrates, the Apology, Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address, a Churchill, We Shall Fight on the Beaches, a Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream. The conclusion that we came to was that there are sort of three, three characteristics that make a speech truly great. The first is that the speech, it speaks to something, you know, of course, it speaks to the context of the time, the challenges of the time, the problems of the time. So to take the example of, of the Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln, who was America's 16th president, the challenge of his time, the problem of his time was the Civil War. The problem was that the South wanted to secede from the Union over slavery and over states' rights. And so Lincoln's challenge as president was, how do I prevent this from happening? How do I keep the union together? And at the same time, you know, h- how, do I, how do I enshrine the principle of equality in American law? Mm-hmm. Of course, the Gettysburg Address, it speaks to the problem of the time. It you know, discusses the Civil War. Uh, it, it, it sort of implicitly discusses slavery. But at the same time, to be a truly great speech, this is characteristic number one. The speech has to speak to something beyond just the context. It has to speak to something timeless about the human experience. So in, in the final line of the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln, he broadens his speech to cover not just America, but really to cover all of world history and to really cover political philosophy. And so in the final line, he discusses you know, the, the question of the Civil War isn't just, is the Union going to survive? It's whether government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth, right? So he's really talking about these big picture themes of human freedom, human equality, and ultimately democracy. So Nathan, the second characteristic for me is that the speech has to be both prose and poetry. So, of course, speeches, they're written in paragraph form, but they also have to be written in a poetic way. They have to use rhetorical devices, things like similes, metaphors, alliteration, things that not just speak to the mind, but they also capture the heart. So, again, let's go back to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. What does he do there? First of all, he has a ton of language about life and death. The the address is brimming with the language of, of birth and death. Um, he says that the, the Civil War will inaugurate a new birth of freedom. In the first paragraph, he says that America was conceived, conception, conceived in liberty 
and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. He also uses, and this was one of his favorite tools, a a rhetorical tool called antithesis. Antithesis, it's all about balancing opposites, right? Famous example from Charles Dickens, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. In in, uh, the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln, he talks about the living and the dead. Because the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what the soldiers did here. So it's full of these, these polar opposites. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these rhetorical devices, again, it's not, it's not all about what you say. It's also about how you say it. When you use these devices, it really makes it memorable for the audience, not just you know, for the audience at the time, but it, it makes it so memorable that we're here discussing the Gettysburg Address uh, uh, 150 years later. Mm-hmm. Third, third characteristic for me is that uh, the speaker himself or herself has to walk the walk, as I said with Seneca. Um, it's not enough to just say things. You also have to do things, right? There's an old Roman proverb, facta non verba. It means deeds, not words, actions, not words. Um, one thing you'll, you'll notice, and I certainly noticed this when I was thinking about who the greatest speakers of all time were. Okay. Um, a number of them were, were assassinated or murdered or executed, right? Think about Socrates, the apology. He was uh, uh, convicted by an Athenian jury of um, believing in false gods, and mm-hmm. he was put to death. Lincoln was assassinated. John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Robert F. Kennedy. I would include Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, right? He, he, he was executed. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm not saying that it is a requirement to be executed in order to be a great speaker of history, but that kind of thing is a signal that you were doing something generally revolutionary. You were doing something generally unorthodox. You were willing to walk the walk. You were willing to stand up to the powers that be. Um, and, and so I, I would say uh, the third characteristic is you, know, you have to translate your speech into some real world action that fights for justice and that fights for people. So it's really a big mix of being relevant to the person you're talking to, how it's delivered through specific choices of the speaker, and finally, it having actual substance that actually comes together to make the impact that it really does. Exactly. It's both you know, the reason and the passion, logic and performance. Uh, that, that was a fantastic answer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, that was a fantastic question, Nathan. <laughs> for the second question, um, just more into the dictator side of speeches, a big part of history. Um, how do dictators use speeches to effectively generate propaganda for their campaigns? Sure. Well, um, rhetoric, public speaking, persuasion, these are great powers. And as the saying goes, I think it's often attributed to either Winston Churchill or the Batman with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, you, You know, when you, when you have this power, you do have a great responsibility. And unfortunately, Nathan, people in history who have had this great power, they have abused it. Um, the example that comes to mind for me is Adolf Hitler. By all accounts, Hitler was an extraordinary public speaker. I mean, he was mesmerizing. He captivated his audiences. To, to give you some sense of what he was like, uh, I mean, there, there is footage online. There's also a great rendition by Charlie Chaplin in the movie called uh, The Great Dictator. Hitler, he, he was a passionate man. He was a passionate speaker. I mean, 
Uh, and and he, he worked hard on his speeches. Um, unlike, I would say, most leaders today, but like many of the greatest speakers in history, he wrote all his own stuff. He didn't have ghostwriters or speechwriters. You know, Lincoln wrote his own speeches. Churchill did. Um, and, and so did Hitler. And actually, Hitler labored over his speeches. He would write them out. He would rehearse them a bunch of times. He wasn't satisfied. He would edit them a bunch of times. Uh, he would even go so far as to look, them, look at himself in the mirror and practice his hand gestures, practice his facial expressions, practice his tonal modulation. I mean, everything was rehearsed to a T. And the effect was great. Um, but to answer your question, how do dictators use it? What makes Hitler different from a Lincoln or a Churchill? Lincoln and Churchill were inspiring their people and they were inspiring them to do good. Hitler was not inspiring his people. He was inspiring fear in them. That's the big difference. Hitler's tools, in addition to all the rhetorical devices, were hatred, fear, and anger. Uh, and if you, know, if you read history about the rise of the Third Reich, Essentially, Germany had been going through a very tough time. They lost World War I. Uh, they were humiliated by the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, 1919. They went through a devastating hyperinflation, 1923. Um, like the rest of the world, they suffered in the Great Depression. So it was a really catastrophic period for, for the Germans. And they were looking for this Superman, you know, this, this one guy who would take care of all, of, of all their problems. For them, that became Hitler. And Hitler rose to power not just by promising to solve their problem, but by giving them an enemy, someone to hate, uh, and, and by, of course, using violence to instill fear in his enemies and, and in his opponents. Um, so, you know, rhetoric, when you combine it with tools like anger, hatred, and violence, can be used, obviously, for great evil, and that's something that you see throughout world history um, with, with dictators and authoritarian leaders. Mm -hmm. I certainly think that rhetorical devices are a very powerful tool, which we've seen from both the previous answers that we've discussed today. Um, I'd say that I actually studied um, Julius Stryker, who was a Nazi, who was responsible for spreading a lot of the anti-Semitic propaganda during the Holocaust and before the Holocaust. And um, it was just very alarming to see how these tools that can be so persuasive in influencing positive change in the world can also be there's an antithesis and it can be used to negatively impact us as well so exactly and that, that's why to me that third characteristic of you know walking the walk doing good things is so important because yeah you're, you're totally right anyone can use or abuse these tools that's why you know it's up to the speaker to as i said inspire the people not inspire fear in them mm -hmm. certainly and keeping on that track of um using tools to either inspire or inspire fear. Um, how do leaders throughout history really use history itself as a tool? It's a fascinating question, Nathan. Um, there are different philosophies about the use of history. Some people believe that we study history just to enrich our lives and to understand the past. And those are both true. The study of history does enrich our lives and it does help us better understand you know, people um, from a different time, different places and, and cultures. At the same time, um, I believe, and, and I'm not the only one, that history can also serve as a guide in the present. 
and it can help us better understand the present. It can help us better understand the predicaments and challenges we face. At the same time, it can potentially help us predict the future. And I don't mean predict in the sense of, uh, you know, I know what the stock market is going to be one week from now, but it can, it can help us understand how humans work and what may or may not be likely to happen. One of the first historians, perhaps even maybe even the first historian, certainly in the Western tradition, his name was Thucydides. That's he was a trap. But exactly. And, and, and I'll get to that in a second. But yeah, Thucydides, he was a Greek historian. Um, and he wrote this history of the Peloponnesian War, which was a, a, a war um, in uh, around, I believe, 400 BC between Sparta and Athens, the two dominant powers in ancient Greece. And the first chapter of this history, I have it up here. Thucydides wrote, uh, he said, if this history be judged useful by those inquirers who desire an exact knowledge of the past as an aid to the interpretation of the future, which in the course of human things must resemble if it does not reflect it, I shall be content. I have written my work not as an essay, which is to win the applause of the moment, but as a possession for all time. So in, in this very early and seminal work of history, Thucydides is telling us, look, you can use this not just to understand the Peloponnesian War, but to understand the future and your own present. Why? Because history is not, you know, it's not going to repeat exactly, but in the course of human things, the future is going to resemble the past. Another great way of putting it, Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Right. History at, at its core, it's about human nature. Um, it's about understanding what humans do, what humans could do, what humans are capable of doing. Um, and so let's now let's go back to your question about uh, about leaders. How, how did some of these great leaders, Lincoln and, and, and Churchill and so forth, how do they use history? Well, just like I was explaining to you, um, when, when I read about Lincoln and Churchill, I read biographies, I read their speeches. I get the this, this same sense that they're using history as a guide too. In fact, with the Gettysburg Address, there's a scholar named Gary Wills. He very persuasively argues that Lincoln modeled his own Gettysburg Address after the funeral oration of Pericles, which actually is, comes from this Thucydides history of the Peloponnesian War. Pericles was a Greek leader and statesman, um, just like Lincoln was. Pericles was leading his, his city of Athens through the Peloponnesian War. Lincoln was leading his country through the Civil War. Pericles was delivering this funeral oration um, at, a, 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 at a cemetery, at a funeral um, for soldiers during the war. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, very similarly. During the war, at a cemetery, delivering a funeral oration. Um, and so you can see why Lincoln might have looked to Pericles. And if you read both their speeches side by side, you'll notice a lot of similarities. We won't don't go through them all now, but both talk about their ancestors, both talk about democracy, both talk about the uniqueness of, of their states. Um, and, and both, again, they brought in from the particular circumstances to broader beliefs about human freedom and, and human democracy. Churchill was the same way. I mean, all these leaders, they were very, uh, first of all, they were voracious readers. Second of all, they were very serious students of history, and they all looked to the past to help them understand the present and the future. Mm -hmm. I think that just brings us to the gist of this podcast. It's really about learning from the past. So we try to avoid 
repeating the same mistakes that we already committed. So thank you for those answers. Um, so once again, thank you, Sam. It was really interesting to hear about how leaders all throughout time have used history as well as rhetoric to give powerful speeches to move and influence people. I hope that everyone watching at home enjoyed this talk with Sam as much as I did. And that's it for today. Um, Thank you very much, Nathan. And I'm very much looking forward to listening to future episodes of this podcast. Thanks again. Thank you, Sam. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History for Two. Please share this podcast with your friends and tune in for other episodes. You can also find full video episodes on the website www.history42.com.